0: There we go. Well, good morning to you. A beautiful January day out there. Sorry if I was distracting people. I lost track of the first service. And uh, usually I have this set up beforehand. All right, we're back today. The second in our new series, Transformation, Learning to Live in The Kingdom of God. Last week we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 3. We're going to go back there today and uh, pick up a few more ideas. But uh, here's where we were last week. Uh, We saw, as the title suggests, that transformation, deep change, goes together with the idea of the Kingdom of God. That's why John's message, and uh, and actually the message of Jesus following John, is summarized in this very tight little phrase, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance, transformation goes together with kingdom. So we've uh, tried to begin to develop that idea. And kingdom is this idea that that what God has promised now for centuries that he was going to come back to his world and set things right. He was going to deliver the poor. He was going to provide forgiveness of sins for Israel, restoration from exile. Uh, He was going to bring his Messiah who is the descendant of King David and the Messiah would reign forever in a kingdom marked by shalom, peace, well-being, safety, righteousness, all of those ideas. So John appears and says this kingdom is now arrived and you need to repent. So kingdom and transformation go together. And then what we said was that this idea of transformation, which repentance points us to, is not, uh, it's not just being sorry for our sins. It's certainly not the idea that we somehow can pay for our own sins. It is rather the idea of alignment with God's kingdom. And so we use this image of the puzzle if, if the puzzle at large, uh, when it's assembled, gives us a vision or a picture of what God's kingdom looks like, then this idea of, of transformation is that you and I need to be aligned with that. We need to fit into the picture of the kingdom. And, of course, uh, what repentance says is, we aren't aligned. <laughs> when the kingdom comes to us, when it comes to Israel, we're not aligned. We're, we're like a puzzle piece from a different puzzle entirely. And so there is shaping, there's transformation that needs to take place if we are to fit into that puzzle as God uh, intends we should, as He invites us to participate in the kingdom. And here's the thing, the, the need for transformation is this, that you and I have already been shaped. We have a shape, and, and the way we're shaped is that we fit very precisely into a different kingdom, or a different picture, if you will, of what life is to be like. We fit. We fit into this picture uh, or a different kingdom that the Bible describes as the kingdoms of this world. Think about that image that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar saw that we talked about last week, right, Of, of the head of gold and the arms and chest of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze and the legs of iron. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And you could fill in a lot of others. They're just just the main players on the stage of history. But there's all sorts of other kingdoms. I mean, you could talk about the the kingdom of America. And and what scripture is saying is that we fit with those kinds of worldly kingdoms. Kingdoms. These are kingdoms that are marked by things like uh, anger, envy, contempt, resentment, violence, including, you know, violence of thought, violence of language, and ultimately physical acts of violence. One of the reasons I think it's so important for us to get onto to this idea of transformation and to see its relationship to the kingdom is just that we need to be aware of how impacted and shaped we are by these alternate kingdoms. If we're not aware of that, then repentance can't happen and transformation doesn't take place and we end up being largely shaped by the kingdom that we were born into, the kingdoms of the world, rather than God's kingdom. But, but the message through John the Baptist and through Jesus is, unless we are transformed, we have no parts in the kingdom of God. And that's significant. We all know how to do the other kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> You know, we've seen this working out in the last year uh, with the riots of both the left and the right. I mean, as recently as 10 days ago. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from all the predictable things of the kingdom of this world. It comes from anger and resentment an envy that works itself out in violence. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by it. I mean, that's that's how the kingdoms of this world have operated from time out of mind, right? The troubling thing is that all those different elements, you know, anger, envy, contempt, resentment, violence, those things which are present in the world are very clearly present in the lives of many people who claim to be Christian. And and so we see in some of these riotous situations, people holding up Bibles, people proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus at the same time that their lives are marked by violence and contempt, if not physical violence, certainly violence of thoughts, violence of words. Now, friends, what John the Baptist is saying is that stuff doesn't fit with the kingdom of God. That's driven by a different kingdom. And we need to acknowledge that. And as Christians, to the degree that we participate in that, we need to repent if we're serious uh, in believing that the kingdom of God has come among us through Jesus. Those are different worlds. And this message of repentance then, you see, is not first and foremost for the world. This came to Israel, the people who profess to know the living God. John said to them, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand and you don't fit. That's that's a hard word for me to hear. All right, so I want to go back to this passage because there's some stuff we still need to think about. And uh, I want to do it under the title, uh, Good People Can't Change. And uh, maybe you saw my little email, and maybe you've had a chance to think about that. But but let's work through this, and uh, to refresh ourselves, we'll read this story again. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near." This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right. Uh, Two things that stand out to me that uh, I'd like to think with you about. First, let's talk about kingdom possibility. Is it a possibility for you and me to learn to live in the present kingdom of God. Now, there are some folks who, at least practically, would say, no, no. The the descriptions of the kingdom uh, are so exalted and so far beyond our experience that this is a reality that gets postponed to when Jesus comes back again. Which is kind of nice, because then we don't have to to worry about kingdom stuff, right? But but there are some folks who have basically that idea, and we want to push back against that. We want to say, no, kingdom living, kingdom reality as experienced by believers and lived out, that is a possibility. It's a possibility that is created by God's action. God is the initiator. It's God who brings his kingdom. It's God who promises through the prophets that, God, that he's going to come and he's going to set things right. And then in the fullness of the time, he sends the Messiah. He sends Jesus, his son. And it's in Jesus that this possibility becomes a reality, and ultimately it's made a reality because Jesus not only teaches about the kingdom, but he lays down his life to bring the forgiveness of sins, to bring the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he rises again in power and says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Those are kingdom words, friends authority. He is the king, and he has now established his kingdom. So, God's action creates the possibility of change. The kingdom has come. It's at hand. It's at the door. And in light of that, it is possible for us to seriously consider transformation. But as soon as we say that, we then need to go on and say, that our response to God's action confirms the possibility and the reality of change. Now, we're trying to make a point here, so if I'm not clear, let let me try to emphasize this and explain what I mean. See, there are some people who have such a view of God's power and authority, or sovereignty, they may describe it, that once you say that the possibility of living in the kingdom is, is due to God's initiative and action, they seem to think that that's all you need to say. It's, a, it's a I don't know, almost a magical sort of view. See, it's just going to happen, so... So watch and wait for it to happen. The problem is, if that's all we say and if that's all we think about and expect, then the reality is it doesn't happen. We continue to live those lives of anger, envy, resentment, violent thoughts, violent words. We just continue on. Why? Because, as we've said many times before, god doesn't crash your party he doesn't force himself into your life he prepares the way he opens the door and then he invites you to respond and the response i wouldn't say it's as important as god's provision but in the purposes of god it's absolutely essential Transformation takes place as we affirm, as we say yes to the reality of what God is doing in bringing his kingdom near. I mean, you can see that in this quotation that Matthew makes uh, in, in this passage. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which says, the poet says, A voice, a voice of somebody crying out in the wilderness. And what does the voice cry out? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Create a highway in the desert for God. Matthew says, what the prophet Isaiah was talking about is fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. That's why he quotes it there, right? Matthew's saying, if you want to understand who John is and what he's doing, go back to the prophets. It's all tied together. God is getting ready to bring his kingdom, and he sends this messenger out into the desert to cry out, get ready for God. Prepare a way for the Lord. Create this straight highway. Well, what's that about? I mean, that's metaphor, right? What's the voice in the wilderness asking people to do? He's asking them to open up their lives and give God access. Could God just You know, doesn't God have his own bulldozers? Can't he make and pave his own roads? Well, yes, he can, but he's chosen not to. He's chosen to honor the creatures that he's made with this strange honor that he allows them even to refuse what he wants to do. And so the voice cries... Prepare the way. The voice still comes to you and me today. Prepare the way. Make a straight path for God to move into your life. That's how transformation comes about. It comes about as God's initiative, bringing his kingdom to the world, and then it comes as an invitation. It comes as a command as well but a command invitation that says, all right, now, you open up your life recognizing that you've been shaped to fit into a kingdom which is not God's kingdom. And that if you're going to fit into the picture of God's kingdom, there's going to have to be some tooling work done on you. And the possibility of the kingdom is the possibility that you and I may say to God, yes, come into my life and shape me for your kingdom. I want to participate. I mean, another way to talk about this is what John says to the the Pharisees. We're going to get to that in a minute. But But he says, bring forth fruit... Suitable for repentance, right? You bring forth fruit, he says. To us, the message is the same: bring forth fruit, bring forth manifestations in your life that the kingdom is present. Now, this—it's not you know—it's not self-help. There's shelves and shelves of that stuff at the local bookstore. This is not self-help. This is response to the power of God that is being made available to you in the reality of his kingdom. So it's not self-help, but it's still something that you and I are called upon to do based on God's help and God's possibility. So that's the kingdom possibility that John holds out, that Jesus also holds out, the reality of the kingdom now. But let's go on from that and let's flip the coin over. We talk about kingdom possibility. Let's talk about kingdom impossibility. And to talk about kingdom impossibility takes us into the second half of the story that we read where we talk about these fellows who came out to see what John was doing. (coughs) The Sadducees and the Pharisees. And I think that's who is pictured in this uh, stained glass here. Uh, it's not the people who are getting baptized. It's the, uh, the hall monitors, you might say, right? They are coming, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You can tell that uh, they're looking a little bit uh, frowny as they listen to John and uh, One's got his arms crossed. He's pretty close to what he's hearing. And uh, John is preaching to them. Repent because the kingdom is at hand. Now, who, who were these guys? Well, they are the religious and political, because the two go together, the religious and political elites in Judah, Judea, Jerusalem, Uh, many, perhaps all of these guys, were part of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin, which was 70 men plus the high priest. That's the group that would, three years later, condemn Jesus to death. They uh, They were the ruling council that governed a lot of the affairs in Judah, even though the Romans were over them. The Romans were happy to give some limited local rule to the various peoples they controlled as long as folks behaved. And so the Jews at this point had sufficient credibility with the Romans that they were allowed to have this ruling council. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were all part of that. There were some differences between these two parties, but they had certain things in common. Obviously, they had political influence. The Sadducees were the more aristocratic side, allied with, uh, more closely with the high priest. The Pharisees were more, uh, you, you might say, lay students of the Bible. They were all students of Scripture, even though they had differences among themselves. They all were trained in the study of Scripture and how Scripture related to everyday life. That was part of their their credibility as rulers, because the the idea was you you ruled according to God's word, according to the law, the Old Testament law. So these were people who had influence, they had power, they had the esteem of the general populace. You can can probably understand that, right? Right? We, we tend to miss that because we know from the later story that, that these guys, they're, they're the bad guys in the story, right? They end up condemning Jesus. But in their day, they're not seen that way. These are highly respected people. They're good people, if, if you allow me to use that term. So they come out to... Hear John preach and to see what 's happening there, and John, in his effort to uh, to win friends and influence people, uh, addresses them directly, and he says, "Starting right out, "You bunch of snakes, not just snakes, poisonous snakes you." brood of vipers. Now, what's going on here? Why is John so hard on these people who are highly respected, highly influential? What does he see about them? Well, he sees that these very people who are so highly respected are in fact dangerous, they're they're toxic. If you told John that these people would ultimately oppose the coming of the kingdom of God, I don't think you'd surprise him. If you told John that following his death These are the people who would actually conspire to put the Messiah to death. He might have been surprised at that. But at their overall opposition to the coming of the kingdom of God, he wouldn't be surprised. They're a bunch of snakes. So what is it that makes them so dangerous? I I think we need to try to get our heads around that. Clearly they are. Clearly as it works out in the the Gospels, we see just how dangerous these people are. How opposed to the coming of God's kingdom. Even though they are the students of the Bible. Even though they're the teachers of the law. They miss the coming of the kingdom. They don't fit. They, they need to repent, but they don't. Well, to get our heads around this a bit and, and maybe to set ourselves up for later discussions of this idea of transformation, what we need to talk about a little bit is the shame-honor continuum. Shame-honor, or you can also talk about the failure-success continuum. <clears throat> All of us, including the uh, guys from Jerusalem, all of us live somewhere along this continuum between shame and honor, failure and success. uh, We're probably perceived by other people as, you know, somewhere along there, and maybe we agree with what other people think or maybe we have a different view, but, but we have a certain understanding ourselves of where we would plot out on shame and honor, failure and success. I think every culture has this, cultures do it different ways. They have different markers of success or different markers of uh, failure, but, uh, but they all function with some kind of a thing like this, and you function with some sort of understanding like this. The honor-success end of the spectrum whispers to you, I'm worthy, or I'm a good person. I'm acceptable. That is, I'm acceptable even by God. I'm lovable. The uh, the shame failure end whispers the contrary message. The shame failure end says I'm unworthy. I'm inadequate. I'm really not a good person. I'm unlovable. And we can think of these things in relation to other people or, or are in relationship to, to God himself, right? All right, so we, we live with this in our minds, whispering to us. And uh, the Pharisees have this same thing going on, right? And uh, where do you think they place themselves on the shame-honor continuum? That's that's a giveaway, that's a softball question, friends, right? Of course, they put themselves near the top, maybe at the top, at the pinnacle. They're on the Sanhedrin, of course. They know the word of God. Some of these folks have memorized basically the whole Old Testament. Get that, friends. You can't match that one, can you? They have the esteem of other people, which reinforces the words, I'm worthy, I'm good, I'm acceptable, I'm lovable. Below them, in their estimation, and in the estimation of the general populace, are the ordinary people. These are the people that go about their life just trying to, many of them poor, they're just trying to get by, they're trying to get enough to, to feed themselves and their children on a day-to-day basis. They haven't studied the law. They know some of it, perhaps. They know some of the big stories, but they haven't had the opportunity to study the law. They don't have power and influence. They're not esteemed by other people. They're just ordinary folks. They're down the scale in terms of honor and success. They know it. The Jewish leaders know it. The Jewish leaders say, well, this idea of repentance, probably not a bad idea for those folks, you know? But not for us. We don't need it. And of course, the ordinary people have their own sense of place on the honor and uh, shame scale. And both the Jewish leaders and the ordinary people they know that there are folks below them. They're this group that that the New Testament calls the sinners. And you put in quotation marks because frequently when the Bible speaks that way, what you're hearing is the way people spoke and thought. You're not hearing God's evaluation of how things are. In terms of God's evaluation, the whole spectrum falls under sinners, right? But, but in the human understanding, sinners are the people in the New Testament who are at the bottom. They're the marginalized people. So it's certainly, say, the sexually immoral uh, prostitutes fall in that category. <coughs> it's, uh, it's the tax collectors. Sorry, Doug. Uh, and the reason it's the tax collectors is the tax collectors worked for the Romans. And the Romans were the oppressive overlords. And so to be a tax collector it was presumed that you were dishonest. And frequently they were. That is, they took more taxes than they should have. They extorted people. But the other side was that, uh, that they weren't really loyal to the Jewish people. So they're regarded as traitors. So at the bottom are the sinners. It's the tax collectors and it's the prostitutes. And then there's other categories of people. There's people in professions that are just poorly regarded for a variety of reasons. Shepherds fall into that category. They're among the sinners. And that's really interesting when you think about the Christmas story, isn't it? Because when the angels come to announce the coming of the Messiah, who do they announce it to? Not the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jerusalem. It's it's four miles south, the shepherds around Bethlehem, the marginalized people, the people at the bottom of the shame honor scale, God speaks to them. <clears throat> well, where do, you, where do you and I fall on this? I think that the reality is that most Christians have learned to say, yes, I am a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But at the same time, strangely enough, I mean, so that sounds like we say, yeah, I'm, I'm at the bottom of that list, right? But strangely enough, I think the fact that we are more religious than many of the people around us in a secular society. That we have studied the Bible to some degree and have some understanding of its message about the coming of the kingdom and the work of the Messiah and so forth. Because we have those things in our mind, we're much higher up that scale than the sinners around us. In other words, if there is a temptation for us to place ourselves on this scale, and there is because we all do it, the likelihood is that as believers, we will place ourselves higher up on that scale in our minds than many other folks. And to the degree that we do that, here's the punchline, friends to the degree that we push ourselves up that shame-honor scale, to that degree we make repentance and transformation impossible. And that's why a lot of Christians are comfortable with the idea that repentance is a once-and-done that you do at the beginning of the Christian life, and now you're beyond that. Because people who need to repent as an ongoing process of transformation are people who don't get very high on the shame-honor scale. We, you know, we think, well, I, I know the truth. Yeah, that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees said. See, knowledge doesn't get you there. Knowledge is important, but it doesn't get you to transformation. Well. So what I'd like to do as we work through these uh, messages on transformation, I'm going to try at different times to pull out what I'll call a principle, maybe trying to get some of this in concrete form. so, Here's the first principle of transformation, let's try this, see if this makes sense to you. The more energy we put into maintaining or improving our position on the shame honor continuum, the more concerned you are to move up that scale, the less likely it is that we will practice repentance and the less likely that we will experience transformation. I think that's the case in my own life friends. Because I I still get into this game. See? I spent 35 years as a professor in graduate studies. And yes, I admit it. The study of the Bible See, I, I can really, I know how to do the Pharisee thing. And I know what it's like for students to follow along in the train. See, all that feels great. I, I, can, I can, if I'm not careful, I can, I, I can derive my identity from that. You know the two things that I hate about teaching? <clears throat> the one is just a throwaway, it doesn't have anything to do with sermon. I, I hate grading. <laughs> Always has, it's terrible. But the other thing that I hate, and those of you who are teachers know what I'm talking about, the other thing that I hate, I think virtually all teachers do, is student evaluations at the end of the course you know every student gets the last word <clears throat> and they rate you on all kinds of stuff number ratings that's the way we did it and then there was a chance for comments at the end if, if you hadn't done enough devastation with your number rating you could now say it <clears throat> so you give out these things and they're collected by some student in the class and they're given uh, first to the dean's office. And then they're all put together and they're given to you in a pack to read through and then at your annual meeting with the dean to go over how the year was, oh well, what do you think about these reviews? It's terrible. It's like the darkest day of the year. Why is that? Well because Because the teacher invests so much sense of identity in what they do and accolades push you up that shame honor scale and now all of a sudden a critique can feel like someone has torn your life apart and you're sliding quickly down into the abyss of shame. Do you have situations where that has happened? It can happen in a marriage, you know, where my my wife needs to talk to me about something, and all of a sudden I get these whisperings about what kind of a husband are you? This is pathetic. Are you lovable? You know, all those things come along. And we face them all different places. <clears throat> and, and when we do, if we can't accept that downward move, it prevents change. See, if I can't hear from my students that I'm doing something in the classroom that's not helpful to them, then I never change it. That's how repentance works. It's a painful move downward, but it's essential for change and transformation. Well, the great thing is, as we've already said, it's God himself who comes to us in Jesus and says, I've prepared everything for you so that you can find your place in my kingdom. I've granted you forgiveness, I've granted you my spirit to strengthen you, and now I'm simply asking that you respond to me, that you turn back, that you commit yourself to this process of change, and and I'll direct it, I'll help you with it, but you need to commit yourself to it, and to that, We say either yes or no. On a daily basis. So what are you saying to the Lord? What have you been saying? What do you purpose to say to the Lord this week as he invites you to bring forth fruit for repentance? As he invites you to prepare a way to make a road in the desert that leads right to your life. Let's pray. Lord, these are such powerful truths that John the Baptist brought to the people of his day and then... Even more so, Jesus brought the reality that your kingdom was breaking into this world, like the stone cut without hands that would fall on the feet of the image and grind it to power, to powder. Fulfilling the words of the prophet, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. Lord, we believe that. And yet it's hard for us to open our lives to that reality. We confess that repentance is hard for us. We need your help. We need the power of your spirit encouraging us, strengthening us. Will you this week, Lord, speak into our hearts? Give us the courage to open our lives and to begin this difficult process of change. For the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the glory of his kingdom, we pray. Amen.